our podcast obsession comes to an end in the only way that it could. Welcome to I Have So Many Questions. I am your host, Brian Watson. Please rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts at. Helps bring in new listeners as I work towards establishing my cult of personality, which I have stated repeatedly is the sole purpose of this entire endeavor. This is my little vanity project, my own little venting therapeutic process toward maintaining some semblance of sanity, especially in the year 2020, which I think we can fairly say has turned into, in just six and a half months, a complete and total shit show. Here's how you can get in touch with the show. The Twitter handle is at I have so many pod. The email address is I have questions podcast at gmail.com, facebook.com forward slash I have so many questions podcast. You can also leave a voicemail, not a voicemail, but a voice message on the homepage for the show, which is hosted by anchor.fm and through their mobile app streaming just about anywhere where you get your podcasts at, especially Google Play, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Before we get into the meat of the episode, so to speak, a couple of random observations. I don't know if you've noticed this, and I've noticed it, but I haven't paid all that close of attention to it. It's quasi-pretentious, and also just uh, from a logistical standpoint, it just I just don't see it going anywhere. Have you noticed how it's no longer Hispanic and Latino people that are referred anymore? It's now Hispanic or Latin X because Spanish among the Latin derived languages has very pronounced and very specific gender language. For example, a lot of uh, Spanish words, if they end in O, uh, they're, they're for the masculine. So if you look at a man... Uh, if you're talking to a man in Spanish, you would ask him, hablo inglés, hablo with the O on the end of it. But if you were speaking to a Spanish-speaking woman, you would say habla inglés because the A on the end is feminine, at least as far as I can remember from high school Spanish. Well, when you have a language that has very specific binary gender applications, and it's you refer to a large, uh, an entire population an entire demographic as Latino, the masculine, especially in our um, evolving times and our woke times, referring to an entire group of people, a demographic of people in the masculine when you're lumping in the feminine at the same time, a little problematic. Spanish, generally, when it, if my memory serves in Spanish, the, the default when you're dealing with both groups of people that are both male and female, the default is to go to the masculine, anti-patriarchal, anti-misogynistic, more feminist uh, evolution. That's problematic. So a lot of it now is referring to instead of the Latino community, it's the Latin X community, which I understand. I'm not sure why the X, I'm sure there's a Google search that would yield an explanation as to why they went with X. You can't really go with S or ES, because those have very specific applications in Spanish. And I'm not sure if there's a better letter to put on the end. I don't know why you would need a letter on the end. We couldn't just stick with Latin, but that could probably be vague and problematic as well. Or that's being that word is being applied in a different context to where it would, if you're applying it in more than one context, it would just get confusing. Nowadays, it's Hispanic and Latin X which are distinct demographics. Um, when you're referring to a Hispanic person, you're referring to people from a certain region 
uh, of the globe. And you're referring, when you refer to people who are Latinx, you're referring to people from a different region of the globe. So they are distinct. They're not interchangeable. So they dropped the O and replaced it with an X, which is fine when you're referring in that one specific context, Hispanic or Latinx. You can't apply that, though, in any other context of Spanish. There is just the way Spanish is constructed, and it's very rigid in its gender application. It's very binary, male, female. It's not, it's not really mushy um, like English is, which is why English is so much hard. English is horrible in so many ways when you're, when you have people that say, well, they need to learn English. Okay. Most of the time, those people don't understand English very well themselves, or they butcher the English language, but English is exceptionally hard to learn because it's exceptionally inconsistent and flawed and just makes no sense. Spanish, on the other hand, is very consistent. It's very, it has a structure, it has rules, and those rules are most of the time rigidly applied. As opposed to English, where it just seemed like we made shit up. And that's before you get into dialects, accents, and all that kind of stuff. So beyond beyond referring to people as Latino and replacing it with Latin X, there's just no way you could do that in, in any other context of the of language of the Spanish language itself. Um, in a grammatical sense or anything like that. There's just syntax and that type of thing. There's just no way to do it. I don't see how you can I don't see how you could make Spanish gender neutral. I just not sure how you can do that. Now, I don't know how gender specific French is because I never learned French. To me, French is kind of a wasted language unless you're unless you're from Haiti or France, obviously. Or if you're a Quebecer or a Quebecer, there's really no virtue to learning um, French. But just one of those weird things I noticed is that we're going to the Latinx designation or descriptor, and there's just no way you can apply that X to Spanish itself. I don't see how you could do it, not without having to fundamentally tear down and reconstruct Spanish. And that would be such a Herculean effort. How do you, how do you make a gender-specific language gender-neutral when that language has been around for thousands of years, a couple of thousand years, or thousand to fifteen hundred years? I don't know how old Spanish is as a language. And then you'd have to change it. And then there are so many places that speak Spanish that to be able to have all of them change and adopt to it would just it would be practically impossible. Actually, I don't think it'd be practically impossible. I think it would be impossible. But it's just a random observation. The other random observation that I have is about COVID masks. And I'm on Twitter a lot for the show. I don't see it on Twitter Twitter as much because I don't I don't go to the trending part. I'm sure if I did, I'd see it more. I mostly stick to my own feed, which is largely uh, other independent podcasts and maybe some news outlets and some reporters, usually political reporters. Um, so I don't really see it on my Twitter feed, but on my Facebook feed, my my Facebook feed, personal Facebook feed, feed, my own personal Facebook feed for my personal Facebook account is inundated with the uh, with masks, pro mask, anti mask, and. I'm sure if you've got your own Facebook account or if you've got your own personal Twitter feed or Instagram or whatever, you probably see it all over there too. How it has become a political issue, not so much a political issue, but a cultural issue and a tribal issue at the same time. How you view masks says something about 
for lack of a better phrase, which side you're on. Pro-Trump people are anti-mask. They're also anti, they're also, they don't believe COVID's that bad. They, they basically, they're, they're towing the Trump line. Pro-mask people tend to be very anti-Trump. Now you do get people who are pro-mask and politically neutral, um, or at least they try to say they're politically neutral. But most of the time, the, uh, the position that someone takes on the mask question gives you an idea of their uh, political and ideological worldview at the present time. And I find it, I find it, I'm a pro-mask person. I wear the masks. My wife wears masks. My kids wear masks when we go out in public. We will, my kids meet with a tutor a couple of days a week. And we meet at a restaurant because we used to meet at the public library, but you could only go there for 30 minutes at a time. And that's not tenable. Um, and even then you have to wear a mask in there the whole time, which is fine. I have no problem with that, but it's the time constraint. So now we meet at a local restaurant instead. And when we go to the restaurant, we're the only one, except for the people that work there. And they're all real diligent. They're wearing gloves. They've got masks on. Some of them even got the, uh, the face shields. And they've all got the, the convenience store, gas station, plexiglass shield between you and them. And we're the only ones in there that are wearing, that are wearing masks when we go. And my kids wear the masks when they're with the tutor, except for when they're drink, getting a drink. Um, usually buy a drink. You go to the restaurant, you, you, I feel bad about I don't want to loiter. So I'll buy them a drink. At least that. I'm not going to buy the food because that's a good way to, for me to gain weight. So I'll buy drinks and they'll, we'll all have a drink while the kids are doing the tutor thing. But we're the only ones in there that doesn't work there that's wearing masks when we're there. But I'm pro-mask. And I find, and, and this might just be, again, I'm biased on this. So I'm, I'm seeing what I want to, I think I'm seeing what I want to see to a certain degree. But I also think there's, objectively, I think there is a, there is a degree, a considerable degree of defensiveness from the anti-mask, pro-Trump anti-mask, COVID is a, I don't want to say COVID is a hoax, but people who are downplaying COVID, well, it's not, it's not as bad as the flu or they like to do the, my personal favorite these days is the whataboutism related to H1N1 in 2009. Well, in 2009, we had 60,000 deaths from H1N1 and, or we had 60 million cases of H1N1 and we didn't shut down. I have no idea where they got those numbers from. And I have no idea if those numbers are accurate, but this is the meme I'm seeing or a post that I'm seeing get shared around pro-Trump uh, friends. You know, we didn't shut down the schools and we didn't do this and we didn't do that. And you know, in 2009 with H1N1, why are we doing that now type of thing? The people that are basically saying this is no worse than the flu. Although the flu didn't kill 100 and f almost 140,000 people in five months, six months almost. And it doesn't call out multiple blood clots and residuals for months, typically. So it's not the flu. But in that crowd of, and it's again, I'm going, my, my sample sizes and the friends I have on Facebook, the anti-mask people, the defensiveness, the, justifi the justifications that they come up with for things between sharing posts from people who supposedly work at OSHA that say, yeah, these masks don't do anything. These masks, masks, no mask is going to protect you from anything. There's no, basically saying there's no point to wearing a mask to protect you from a virus. It's not going to protect you from spreading the virus. It's not going to protect you from getting the virus. 
to the the one I've seen lately is how, you know, being required to wear a mask is in violation of your rights under the Americans with Disabilities Act. So like when Walmart and Best Buy and a couple other places said are requiring their customers to wear masks before they'll let you in. I've seen there's a post floating around saying, no, no, they can't do that because it's violating your rights under the ADA, which I don't know how true that is because I've not looked at the ADA and I don't know what the specifications are for your rights under the Americans with Disabilities Act, because generally with the Americans with Disabilities Act, you actually have to have a disability. But I don't know if that's a disability under, you know, like SSD for Social Security disability or if it's a disability, a disability because you say you have one, not one that you've actually been diagnosed with. The justifications to oppose wearing a mask beyond, and then there's the whole, you know, you can't trample on my rights and my freedom type of thing. Whereas the pro mask people, and again, I'm biased because I'm pro mask. The pro mask people are like, I'm wearing a mask. And then it re- it's really gotten heated when it comes to school because school's about to open up. And so now the, the, the mask, the mask debate or the mask rhetoric has really blown up. And then, you've, then of course, anti-mask people are—they um, also like to point out that how the hypocrisy of epidemiologists who are okay with public protesting for Black Lives Matter, but not okay with public protesting for the people that wanted to open up the economy, who like to get in cops' faces at in, you know the Michigan State House, but the cops didn't do anything to them, even though they were armed with AR-15s and stuff. But I digress. The uh, the anti-mask rhetoric. And the pro-mask rhetoric are very different. The anti-mask people go well, that again, entirely based off of my anecdotal observations of my Facebook feed. The anti-mask people are doing everything possible to justify why they're doing what they're doing. And the pro-mask people are basically saying, I'm doing this to be considerate of other people as well as protecting myself, but also being considerate of other people. Because I don't know if I have it and I don't want to spread it to other people, whether it's people I know or whether it's people I don't. There's a much greater degree of defensiveness from the anti-mask people, which is consistent with pro-Trump people. Pro-Trump supporters tend to be way more defensive. That's why they engage in the whataboutism and the um, and everything's a conspiracy. And they they talk out of both sides of their mouth because on the one hand, they complain about the people they oppose, the libs, being perpetuating victimhood and be seeing themselves as victims. And the other on the, on the flip side of that, though, is they out of the other side of their mouth. They're also talking about constantly about how they're being how they are victims and they're being victimized by the libs. So in other words, so on the one hand, criticizing libs for being for, for presenting themselves and perpetuating themselves as victims. And on the other hand, saying that they themselves are the victims of libs. But there's I've noticed that there is a greater degree of defensiveness among the anti-mask people versus the pro-mask people. And I'm wondering, I don't know why that is um, beyond maybe a general disposition, a, a persecution complex, which Trump supporters have had really since Trump got elected or since Trump started running, which is why I think you see more whataboutism and that type of thing. But it's just I just noticed that.
a podcast obsession comes to an end. That's how I began this show, and it ended in the only way that it could. If you've been listening to this show for any appreciable period of time, going back to the beginning, the second episode of this podcast two years ago, I addressed this topic, and I've done so on at least two or three other occasions since then. This will be the last, I'm assuming, I could be wrong, unless something dramatically changes. This will be the last time I talk about this topic. And if you've been paying attention to the show, if you've listened to it from the beginning, or if you've caught up on the back catalog, you know I'm talking about the Curtis Hill saga. If you want to get up to complete and full speed, go back and listen to those episodes. You'll learn quite a bit. To do a quick and dirty update, in 2016, Curtis Hill was elected Attorney General for the state of Indiana. Curtis Hill is an African-American who was the a county prosecutor in a northern county. He was elected in 2016, his first time running for statewide office. He got more votes than any other statewide elected official in that election, and I believe ever prior to that. In 2018, little over a year, the allegations came up in June of 2018. And But the incident, the alleged incident, occurred in March of 2018. In June of 2018, Curtis Hill was accused by four, four or five, I think four, four, four women who were either members of the Indiana General Assembly or worked for the Indiana General Assembly. Three Democrats and one Republican. Uh, the Republican, I believe, is a member of the House of Representatives. They had accused Curtis Hill of inappropriate, inappropriate touching which is a polite way to put it. He was handsy to these women at a bar and an offsite after hours party funded by lobbyists uh, that all of them had attended. And Mr. Hill was inebriated and got handsy and made inappropriate innuendos to these women at the same time. was investigated by by a independent counsel the independent counsel concluded that there wasn't not that there wasn't enough evidence to bring charges but that the likelihood of success of prosecution was not high so he chose not to bring criminal charges that didn't end things there was a civil suit that was filed that was later on dismissed suit filed by the women Uh, immediately after these allegations came out the governor of indiana a republican uh, curtis hill is a republican the in the uh, entire leadership of the General Assembly, all of which is controlled by super Republican supermajorities, all of the leadership and statewide leadership in the Republican Party in Indiana told Curtis Hill to resign, and Curtis Hill told him to pound sand. He wasn't going anywhere. There was a lawsuit filed by the four women that was dismissed later on, and then there was there was an investigation conducted by the Ethics Committee for the Indiana State Supreme Court. The Indiana State Supreme Court has a, has a disciplinary commission that is responsible for monitoring and, if need be, uh, enforcing ethics rules uh, against attorneys in, for the entire state. So if you're a lawyer and you do something illegal or unethical, you're probably going to get investigated by the Disciplinary Commission, which reports to the Indiana State Supreme Court. The Disciplinary Commission started an investigation on Curtis Hill. The Disciplinary Commission recommended that Curtis Hill have his law, Curtis Hill be punished. 
And there was last fall, there was a hearing before a retired judge who acted as a, almost basically she acted like a magistrate or a judge. And basically they presented the disciplinary commission, acted as the prosecutor, and Curtis Hill had his own personal attorney. And basically this magistrate heard, had a hearing, a multi-day hearing with witnesses and evidence to, uh, against the allegations that Curtis Hill acted unethically as a lawyer. Even though he's the attorney general, he is not immune from the disciplinary commission. Although he tried to argue that he was immune from the disciplinary commission because he was the attorney general. But there is no law, there's nothing in the Indiana constitution that, that protects him. So there was a hearing, multi-day hearing, and then the magistrate, the judge, the hearing officer, who heard this last fall, made a recommendation to the state Supreme Court that Curtis Hill have his law license suspended for 60 days, for two months, which created all kinds of problems because Curtis Hill, Curtis Hill's the attorney general. And Indiana law, the Indiana constitution requires that the attorney general have a valid law license in Indiana in order to be the attorney general. What Indiana law does not say and what the state constitution does not say is what happens if the attorney general loses his license while he's a, while he's attorney general whether he loses it for a period of time like a 60-day suspension or whether he loses it permanently reasonable argument to say that if he were to lose his law license permanently he couldn't be attorney general he'd have to resign but what happens if he gets it suspended for a period of time a temporary suspension what happens then indiana law was unclear the Indiana General Assembly last year, or actually no, excuse me, earlier this year, had attempted to resolve that issue, to, um, to change the law so that if he were to get his license suspended, if the state Supreme Court were to say, yes, he should get his license suspended temporarily, that he would have to resign. That bill died. It was a bill that was proposed by a Republican. It passed in the Indiana House and died in the Indiana Senate, both of which are controlled by supermajorities of Republicans. But it died. So the General Assembly left session without any clarification on, on the law or any guidance on what to do if Curtis Hill, if the state Supreme Court were to, which hadn't ruled by the time the session, the General Assembly's session ended, there had been no ruling. There was no guidance from the Indiana General Assembly about what to do with Curtis Hill if he were to get his law license temporarily suspended. At the same time that all of this is going on, 2020 begins and it's an election year and Curtis Hill is up for re-election and he has primary challengers, except for the attorney general doesn't have a primary in Indiana, but he has challengers from his own party and they are vying to remove him and to become the Republican nominee for the gen for attorney general in the fall election is, or how Indiana does that is, or how the Republican party in Indiana does that is basically there's a vote at the state convention. The Republicans, like every political party in the state has a convention. The delegates vote at that convention on who the nominee is going to be. But in all likelihood though, whoever becomes the nominee at the convention is gonna be the attorney general. Indiana is a very Republican state. It's kind of like surviving a primary. You survive the primary, you're gonna get reelected. That's what's gonna happen here. If you're Curtis Hill, you've gotta survive the convention. You've gotta survive the vote at the convention. And you've got the governor actively opposed to you. You've got the gen leadership of the General Assembly actively opposed to you. So much so that they tried to change the law so that 
if you were to get your license suspended, even temporarily, you had to resign and you could not run for re-election. That was the law that was under, that was, that was the law, okay, under consideration that died. If he got his license suspended, even if it was for, you know, a short period of time, he would have to resign and he would not be able to run for re-election in the fall. He would be prohibited. That's pretty harsh when it comes from your own party. He's got all these headwinds, but Curtis Hill from the get-go has been running this Trumpist, pro-Trump, populist kind of campaign, this re-election campaign, where he's he's basically he's basically wrapped his body around Trump's left leg and won't let go. He's like a two-year-old toddler who wraps themselves around your leg and then you've got to drag him all over the place. That's Curtis Hill with Donald Trump. Might explain why Trump leans in that weird way when he's standing. Google it. You'll, you'll understand what I'm talking about. That might be because of her, Curtis Hill's holding onto one of his legs. But Curtis Hill's been running this Trumpist, populist, defiant campaign, re-election campaign this whole time. And he thinks, and that strategy is clearly intended to ingratiate himself with the delegates, the Republican delegates, who tend to be more hardline, more, who tend to be more pro-Trump than, say, your typical Republican voter would be. That's why they're a delegate. They're hardcore. So Hill is running his re-election campaign and has been understanding that this, that really all he's got to do is get these people, these delegates, and there's like a thousand to 1300 of them. You know, he's just got to get 51% of them to go along with him. So he's been, you know, doing the persecution complex. You know, there's been no charges. I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't done anything illegal. They didn't, you know, if I, if, if they thought if I had done something wrong, they would have prosecuted me. Completely ignoring the fact that he had ethics charges brought against him with the state Supreme Court. He didn't have criminal charges brought against him. That's the quick and dirty rundown. Here's what's happened since then. As I mentioned a moment ago, the hearing officer recommended a 60-day suspension of Hill's license. And that's where we left things at the last episode, which was right at the, which was a few months ago, right before COVID really blew up. And it was right as the Indiana General Assembly session was ending. So here's what's happened since then. In May, early May, the Indiana State Supreme Court determined that Hill violated professional conduct rules and committed the criminal act of battery. The court unanimously suspended Hill's law license for 30 days. The recommendation had been 60 days. The court says, yeah, you committed criminal battery. You did these things. We completely agree with the hearing officer, but we're going to be nice to you and only give you 30-day suspension. That 30-day suspension was to start on May 18th. Hill cannot take on any legal matters during the suspension, but he was suspended with automatic reinstatement, meaning that he can resume practicing law when the period ends, rather than having to reapply for this license, which can take, two, which can take months. The recommendation had been, if my memory serves, 60-day suspension, with, but not without, but without any automatic reinstatement, which means that after 60 days, if he hadn't, if he had done things wrong, or if he hadn't shown adequate contrition or that type of thing, it was at the discretion of the court to reinstate his license. The court said instead, suspend his license for 30 days, but he gets automatic reinstatement. So if he keeps his nose clean for 30 days, he gets his license automatically reinstated, and he can go back to being the attorney general. In the previous episode, I had speculated as to whether or not Curtis Hill would accept this, would accept any any 
adverse or negative conclusion by the court and instead file a lawsuit. My thought was, especially given his populist, defiant demeanor over the last several years since these allegations emerged, my thought was that Hill would fight this tooth and nail to his dying breath. Yeah, I got that wrong. In a statement issued Monday, this would have been in May, by the Attorney General's office, Hill said he accepts the court's suspension, quote, with, with humility and respect, unquote. Quote, I offer my deepest gratitude to my family, friends, and the entire staff of the Office of the Attorney General. My staff has worked tirelessly and without interruption and will continue to do so on behalf of all Hoosiers, unquote. So he accepted it without question. He didn't fight it. He didn't raise a hissy fit. He didn't do anything. I believe he continued to, I believe in that statement, he continued to deny the allegation, but he accepted the ruling of the court, which is very unusual because if you deny the allegations, why would you accept the, the ruling of the court? Why would you accept the punishment? If you didn't do anything wrong, why would you accept the punishment? But he did. Why? Because it was only 30 days and it was an automatic reinstatement. And if he acted like a complete and total douche, as he had done the entire time up to that point, you don't want to piss off the court, basically. Keep your head down, keep your mouth shut, treat it like a vacation, go away for 30 days, and then everything will be fine. I'm sure that's what his lawyer told him to do. I'm sure I'm sure that's probably his campaign manager for his re-election told him to do. So his license would be a suspended effective May 18th, which means right around June 18th, which is just a couple of weeks before, which is actually just a few days before the Republican convention, the state Republican convention was scheduled to occur, his license would be reinstated and he'd be back as attorney general. So basically, as the delegates are deciding his fate, his punishment comes to an end. It's also, all of this is going on as these delegates are about to decide his fate. While Hill had his license suspended, he appointed one of his deputies to assume his responsibilities for the legal operations of the office during the temporary suspension. That deputy would take over from May 18th through June 17th. His attorneys decided, declined to comment on the ruling of the court. So when the court dished out its punishment, his lawyers didn't say anything, which is also interesting. The court agreed with the hearing officer's determination that Hill's conduct constituted battery. It found that Hill committed, quote, criminal conduct, unquote, during the performance of his professional abilities. The court also concluded that Hill went too far in some of his, in some of his attempts to combat the allegations when they were first made public in July of 18, particularly when he called the claims vicious, quote, vicious, unquote, implying malice by the four women, the court said. Quote, he claimed at the final hearing that his use of the term vicious was directed at the process and not at the individual accusers, unquote. Quote, but the hearing officer was not persuaded and we defer to her firsthand assessment of that testimony, unquote. The ruling of the court also noted that according to the rules, the disciplinary commission can object to Hill's reinstatement on the basis that Hill didn't comply with the terms of the order and remain removed from the office. So basically the court's saying, yeah, 30 days with an automatic reinstatement, but the disciplinary commission is going to be keeping their eye on you which is probably why he shut up. He didn't fight it. He shut up. He kept his head down and he basically disappeared for 30 days because the disciplinary commission who was already on his ass and who had instigated this whole process was going to be watching him. And I'm sure the concern was that anything that he did could be construed as not complying with the, uh, not doing what he was supposed to do, not complying with the terms of the order. And they recommend that his uh, license be further, his suspension be extended. Immediately after the court issued the 30-day suspension, the governor of Indiana, Eric Holcomb, 
asked the state Supreme Court to clarify whether its decision to suspend Curtis Hill's law license should result in his removal from office. Remember the legislation that died that was supposed to clarify this, this whole thing? Go back and listen to that episode. The reason for why it died in the Indiana Senate, or at least the publicly stated reason, was exceptionally stupid. But there was no clarification in the Indiana law. What do you do with Curtis Hill? What do you do with Curtis Hill when his law license gets suspended because the, the Constitution requires that the Attorney General have a have a valid law license in order to be attorney general. The governor petitioned the state Supreme Court, and according to the court filing from the governor's office, the governor wants to appoint a new attorney general. As the court suspended Hill's license, the court in its ruling didn't tackle the larger question of what it means for his ability to continue as attorney general. Indiana law requires the attorney general to have a law license, but the court did not say whether the temporary suspension should result in Hill's removal from office. Holcomb, through his general counsel, filed a motion to intervene in the case, asking if Hill is ineligible to continue to be attorney general without a law license. If so, Holcomb asked the court to immediately have the office vacated. And this had been part of Holcomb's strategy from the beginning, because Holcomb didn't push very hard in the General Assembly to get this legislation pushed through. Basically, Hill said, or not Hill, but Holcomb, Governor Holcomb basically said, I'm good. You know, this is, you know, the court needs to provide us with guidance on this which was really stupid because the court was never going to provide guidance on this. The court, the Indiana state Supreme court, which is in, from a legal perspective, conservative is not going to create law out of whole cock, out of whole cloth when there's nothing on the books to address this. Okay. They're not going to do it. They're not going to create a rule out of the air. They're just not going to do it. So for the governor to, to ask them to do so, was just irresponsible. Okay, if you're really that concerned about it, you pass a law in Indiana. You don't go to the court and ask them to engage in, for lack of a better term, judicial activism and put a rule in place uniquely specific to this situation when there's nothing in there's nothing in the Indiana code and there's nothing in the Indiana constitution that pro- can provide them with guidance here. They're just not going to do it. So for Holcomb to do that just showed how lazy and how cowardly he is about this issue because if he really wanted Hill gone he could get Hill gone but he doesn't want to try to do that because he doesn't because he is worried and rightly so probably that especially given Hill's populism and his pro-Trump sycophancy that Holcomb doesn't want to piss off Trump voters because Trump voters are the people that are going to vote for him. So he doesn't want to make them mad. So he doesn't want to, he wants to look like he's doing something without doing something. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to take on any risk, which is kind of the, which has been Eric Holcomb's MO since he became governor. And he became governor at the last minute because Mike Pence became the vice president or the vice presidential candidate. But the governor files a motion with the court, knowing full well that that motion wasn't going to go anywhere. There was no way the court was going to, was going to create a rule out of nothing to apply to this situation, especially when they didn't do it with the ruling itself. If they were going to do that, they would have said, okay, we're suspending him for 30 days with an automatic reinstatement. Here's what that means to him. Here's what that means under Indiana law and under the Indiana constitution regarding the attorney general's office. They would have done that. The fact that they didn't tells you, should tell you right away what they're going to do, or more importantly, what they're not going to do. In the court filing, Holcomb's attorneys argued Hill cannot perform his statutory responsibilities without a law license and lacks the authority to appoint a temporary replacement. 
They argued only the governor can fill such a vacancy, they argued. Keep in mind, the attorney general does not report to the governor. He's an independent, he's an independently elected position. He's not appointed by the governor and then, and then uh, approved by the general assembly. The, the attorney general is voted, is voted on by the voters every four years. So he's an independent position. He's independent of the governor. So you have Holcomb do this, file this motion immediately after the court says we're suspending Curtis Hill's license for 30 days. He files this motion, which is, again, it's looking like you're doing something without actually doing something. This was largely due to the fact that at that point in time in May, just a handful of weeks before the convention, it looked likely that Hill was going to win the nomination at the convention. It was also likely there was also a good chance that Democrats could win the attorney general's office in the general election in the fall because Curtis Hill was very unpopular. There was no real polling, but the last polling that had been done, which was a few weeks ago or a few months ago, was not promising for Curtis Hill. And if you're the Republican Party in Indiana, what you don't want is split ticket voting. You don't want people... You want straight party line voting. You want them to click that. I vote. I vote. I'm voting for all Republicans. You don't want them to go ballot, go office by office and vote. You don't want that because if they start, you don't, you don't want people thinking about if they take a different position regarding the attorney general, they may take a different position on who they're voting for in the state house. They may take a different position on the governor. They may take a different position on Trump. Not likely, really, but you don't want that possibility. You want them to click on, I approve all Republican. You want straight party line vote. Straight ticket balloting, I think is what it's called. That's what you want. And if Curtis Hill's on the ballot, that becomes a problem. At the same time, shortly after, it might have been on the either the day that his law license, his suspension began or the day after his suspension began, Another person entered the race for attorney general on the Republican side. That person was former Secretary of State, Indiana Secretary of State, and former Congressman Todd Rakita. Rakita, interestingly, Rakita entered the race in mid-May specifically to challenge Curtis Hill and specifically to run on the allegations and the suspension of Curtis Hill. The other two candidates for attorney general on the Republican side kind of glossed over it or kind of didn't really address the allegations against Curtis Hill. They, they, made, vague, they made vague inferences, but that was about it. Todd Rakita who is a firebrand conservative, hardcore conservative. He had run, he'd stepped down from the House of Representatives because he ran for the U.S. Senate seat in Indiana in 2018 and lost in the primary, in a three-way primary he lost. Rikita enters the race, you know, just four or five weeks before the, the balloting at the convention is to begin. He runs explicitly at Curtis Hill's unethical behavior, to put it kindly. He just, he takes it head on. That's his motivation for for this. The Republican convention would have 1,800 state convention delegates and they'd be voting virtually beginning in late June and the voting would conclude on July 9th with the uh, winners announced on July 10th. 
all three challengers to Curtis Hill questions Hill's fitness to run for another term. The state party chairman and the governor had called for Hill to step down and had done so recently after the, especially after the, uh, the announcement of his suspension, both saying that uh, Hoosiers would be best served by having a new attorney general. Hill was undeterred by his calls to resign or drop out. What's interesting about this, about the Republican convention this year is because of COVID, it was going to be virtual. The candidates for attorney general made their case to the delegates through a, a, some kind of online session where they gave basically gave speeches arguing for their candidacy. So they didn't, so there's no meeting in person. There's no leaning on, leveraging, glad handing, schmoozing. There isn't any of that that's being done, which normally at a convention, when you get a whole bunch of people in the same place at the same time for a common cause, you get a pretty good opportunity to do all the schmoozing that you can to persuade people, lean on people, intimidate people to support you or to oppose the other guy. When asked why he was entering the race for attorney general, just days after the Supreme Court sanctioned Curtis Hill, Todd Rakita said he, had, would have, he would not have jumped into the race if the Supreme Court had cleared Hill. Quote, at that point, it was clear that this incumbent will not win in November, unquote, Rakita said. Quote, he likes to think that the convention voter is the November voter and they're not. They're completely different kinds of people. The November voter will be very sensitive to the advertising that Democrats are going to levy on this incumbent if he's the nominee. And it's not only going to affect the attorney general's race, it's going to affect races all up and down the ballot, unquote. Todd Rakita has exactly stated the problem for the Republicans in Indiana in 2020. Beyond all the other problems that they may have, especially with COVID and with the economy. And Eric Holcomb has been very, has tried to be very proactive in his handling of COVID. He hasn't been like Texas and Georgia and Florida or Arizona for that matter. He's been way more proactive on top of it. It's clear that he has been, he's emulating the governor of Ohio, who's also a Republican, more so than he's emulating the governors of Texas or Arizona or Georgia or Florida, who are also Republicans. So he's been trying to stay on top of this thing and all of that could be completely, and it's still going to be a little precarious for him. I don't think he has any worries about getting reelected. I think he's going to get reelected easily because the Democratic Party in Indiana is a joke, just an absolute joke. It's a waste of time. You'd have a better chance of, you'd have a better chance if there was no Democratic candidate, the Libertarian would have a better chance of beating Holcomb than the Democrat would, to put it that way. If Hill's on the ticket, Rakita is, is exactly right. This is a problem. He's a problem. That's why the governor wants him gone. That's why the state chairman wants him gone. Well, he's gone. As of July 10th, and I'm recording this episode on July 19th, nine days ago, the votes were counted and former Congressman Todd Rakita has won the Republican nomination for attorney general, having convinced party delegates that sticking with embattled attorney general Curtis Hill is too much of a risk. Rakita won 52 to 48 percent over Hill, who will not get the chance to seek a second term after being the top statewide vote getter in any race four years ago. The other two challengers were eliminated after several rounds of caucus voting. Republican delegates have been voting in the attorney general's race by mail since their convention ended June 18th. So from June 18th to July 9th, because the delegates had to have their ballots in by July 9th, voting began with voting took place over a three week period. Delegates ranked their four choices for attorney general on their mail-in ballots. 
Party officials counted the votes today in rounds in a process that included watchers from each campaign. Hill was the top vote-getter in each of the first two rounds, but did not win the majority necessary to end the race. So, in the first two rounds, Curtis Hill's looking pretty good, but he can't clear the 50% threshold needed to secure the nomination. But as each round goes, the other candidates drop off. So, until it comes down to Rakita and Hill. And by this point, there's no more lobbying. There, You can't... It's not like there's another round of voting. This is a... Um, I can't remember what the term is. But this is priority balloting, or it's pref, or it might be called. I think it's called preferential balloting. Where here's my first choice, and if I can't have this person, this would be my second choice, and if I can't have that person, this would be my third choice. So depending on what happens, you've got a tiered, you've got a tiered ballot of your four choices, and depending on what you fill in, you send that in, and depending on how what, depending on how all of that works, whatever that that order, that preferential order is determines how your ballot gets counted in each rounds of the voting. So if you picked candidate C in the first as your first choice, but you pick Todd Rakita as your second choice, once candidate C gets eliminated, then your ballot gets counted for Todd Rakita. And as the other two challengers got eliminated, it came down to Hill and Rakita, and Rakita won by four points, which is a lot closer than I thought it would be. Rikita, who had served two, ter two terms as Secretary of State and four terms as a congressman, argued to Republican delegates that he has the bona fide chops to uphold conservative values on things like abortion, health care, and gun rights, without the baggage that Hill would have carried into the race. Quote, Curtis Hill has put himself ahead of his elected office in our values, unquote, Rikita told delegates. Quote, because of his bad judgment, not just on one night, but in a long pattern of inappropriate behavior, personal responsibility is saying you're sorry when you fail others, taking ownership of mistakes. It is something to teach your children every day, unquote. In his pitch to delegates, Hill was defiant, saying he would, he would offer bold leadership on conservative issues and likening himself to President Trump. Quote, like President Trump, I have faced accusations and investigations designed to destroy me politically, unquote, he said. Quote, like President Trump, I'm a threat to Democrats and a radical liberal agenda. Both President Trump and I are wounded, some would say, and notice we are both warriors with battle scars, unquote. He's a, yeah, Curtis Hill's a threat to Democrats in the state of Indiana, the Democratic Party who hasn't won a statewide office in God knows when. As Curtis Hill is um, fighting for his political life, and pleading his case to the Indiana Republican Party. The governor's trying to remove him from office through the state Supreme Court. The state Supreme Court told the governor, go pound sand. They declined his request. They, they declined to consider his request to remove Hill from office. So Curtis Hill gets to serve out his term, but he doesn't get to run for re-election because he's not going to be the nominee. He's not going to be the candidate for the Republican Party, Republican Party in Indiana for attorney general. That's going to be Todd Rakita. And Todd Rakita is going to win unless something very, very weird happens over the next four months. Todd Rakita is going to be the new, next attorney general for Indiana. And I'm sure he's going to use that to uh, run for possible governor in 2028, because Holcomb's going to get, or 2024, I should say, because Holcomb's going to get reelected in 2020, but he's going to be term limited. He's going to have to uh, step down in 2024. And Rakita, I'm sure, has every intention to run for governor in 2024. If not... Maybe try to get back into, uh, maybe he runs for the Senate again, challenges Todd Young 
the incumbent, Republican incumbent in 2022, but that seems highly unlikely. More than likely, Rakita, he'll get elected this year to attorney general, and then in 2024, he runs for governor. And then, because Rakita, I'm sure, probably has uh, presidential aspirations, and the only way he's going to be able to do that is if he's a governor. But Curtis Hill's been kicked to the curb. The Curtis Hill saga for this podcast, this podcast's obsession with Curtis Hill is coming to an end. And it's coming to an end in, unlike the rise of Skywalker, a very satisfying way. He's gone. What I find interesting, and this is just speculation on my part, how different would how different would this result have been if there had been an actual convention where the delegates met downtown in Indianapolis at the convention center or wherever they meet at, and you had those 1,800 delegates in, in the same place at the same time with Curtis Hill. How, would he, how differently would he have fared? Would he have fared better? Would he have fared worse? Hard to say. Because all he had to do was give a speech to the delegates. Well, the thing about a speech is you don't have to answer questions. You just, you just make your pitch and you go. If you've got a schmooze with delegates, then they get to pepper you with questions. They get to ask you all kinds of things. They get to take your temperature. And at that point, you know, would Rikita or not Rikita, would Curtis Hill have fared better? Would he have done better with the delegates if he'd been able to schmooze with them and lean on them and glad hand them and all that kind of stuff? Would they have been more receptive to him in person? Or they have been less receptive to him in person because then he would have had to answer questions. There would have been, he would have had to answer questions from the delegates, not necessarily from the press because he can ignore the press, but he would have had to answer questions from the delegates while he's talking to them. You know, you get a Republican delegate from Terre Haute who's, uh, who starts peppering you with questions about these allegations and Curtis Hill gives the wrong answer and all of a sudden it spreads like wildfire all over the place. They're schmoozing with Curtis Hill during the day and then at night they're all eating dinner together at Ruth's Chris or whatever. Or they're hanging out at a in the bar at the hotel, and they're all talking about and the one and the Republican delegate from Terre Haute's telling talking telling everybody what Curtis Hill told him, and then all of a sudden Curtis Hill's in serious trouble and he doesn't even know it. How would Rakita have fared schmoozing and meeting him within person? I'm sure Rakita probably would have done better if he'd been able to do so. Because again, these are delegates. These are hardcore Republicans. These are true believers. These are the these are super conservative folks. Okay, party hardliners. Todd Rakita is a party hardliner, so he probably would have fared probably a little bit better in person. Um, and he, I think he would have done a he would have been more. I think his sales pitch probably would have been more persuasive, more persuasive in person and more um, more emphatic in person than what than what he was able to do virtually and the other thing you don't know is you don't know how how much lobbying and leveraging and and um, how much emailing and texting and skype calls or whatever facetime was being done between the candidates and the the delegates I mean, are they allowed to do that? Are they allowed to do that and in normal times? Or are they allowed, were they allowed to do that this year because of the virtual convention that was going to have to be done? Because of the compromises that needed to be done in order to uh, accommodate the uh, precautions from COVID? Hard to say. Instead, you have a virtual convention. There's a lot more opportunity for the governor, the state party, other Republican officials to do a lot more behind the scenes persuading of delegates than especially if they're voting over a three week period. I mean, you've got three weeks from the moment they, from the moment convention ends to when the ballots got to be turned in, you've got three weeks of lobbying that can be done. And if the candidates can't do any kind of lobbying during that period, and I don't know if they could or if they couldn't, 
But if they can't, but you can take calls from the party chairman or the governor, those guys have got an advantage. And even if they did have that advantage, they barely won. You know, 52 to 48 is close, especially under these circumstances. But at the same time, Rikita just got in four weeks before the voting started. He got in at like the last second. So if he'd gotten in earlier, say he jumps in when the, uh, when the hearing officer makes her recommendation of a 60-day suspension. If he'd gotten in at that point, how much more successful would he have been? Probably, he probably would have done a lot better. But he runs on, Rikita and jumps in. He's got, his, his bona fides are well established within the Republican Party. And you got to figure that Rikita was probably put up to it by the governor, by the state party chairman. They were probably looking for somebody because they knew the two guys that were challenging Hill weren't going to cut it. So they were probably looking for somebody with instant name recognition within the Republican Party and instant bona fides that could tip the scales against Curtis Hill. And they found it in Todd Rikita. And then Rikita does, he doesn't make, he doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't sugarcoat things. He comes right out and says, this guy's damaged goods. This guy's going to cause us problems. This guy needs to go. And I'm the guy that can do all of the things that he's done. You don't need him to get the things done that he's been doing. I can do those, all those things without the baggage. It was a persuasive argument or at least persuasive enough. It did the job. But I wonder how much of this, how much of this outcome is the result of the virtual convention versus being able to do an in-person convention. Just an interesting speculation on my part. The Curtis Hill saga is over. It ends. And I got to say, I'm, I'm pleased. I'm not a Curtis Hill fan. The original, the first episode about Curtis Hill was prefaced under the notion of why you should be nice to others. Or that was the question that I was addressing anyway, is why you should be nice to others or why you should play well with others. Curtis Hill hadn't done that. But I got to say, I'm pleased with this result. I'm not a Todd Rakita fan in any way, but... He's better in Curtis Hill, that's for sure. And I'm pleasantly surprised by this outcome because I have little to no faith in either political party in this state. They're just, they're awful in different ways, but they're both awful. And to see this kind of an outcome is satisfying and unexpected. It's a pleasant surprise. I'll say that. But it's over. Now I got to find a new thing to obsess about repeatedly in multiple episodes over the span of two years. Hmm. That's going to be a tough nut to crack. That's going to be a hard, this is going to be a hard, hard subject to top. Not really, but I can't think of one on the horizon. I'll say that. I got nothing. But tell me what you think. What do you think about the whole Curtis Hill saga? Are you glad that it's over? Because I'm willing to bet that you are. I'm kind of glad it's over. You know, the 20 to 30 minutes of research I have to do for each of these episodes, it's, it's tiring. I shouldn't have to do that much heavy lifting. But tell me what you think. Comments, questions, criticisms, or concerns about this topic or any other topic. At any point in time, if you want to make up a topic, if it's something I haven't covered and you want to tell me about it, knock yourself out. And here's how you do so. You can send me a DM on Twitter or you can just send me a tweet on Twitter the Twitter handle is at I have so many pod send me an email the email address is at is I have questions podcast at gmail.com 
That's I have questions podcast at gmail.com. And go to the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash I have so many questions podcast. You can leave me a voice message on the homepage for the show at anchor.fm. I believe that's anchor.fm forward slash I have so many questions. Let me know. Hit me up. Drop some knowledge on me. Drop some opinion on me. Drop crass insults on me if you must. But let me hear from you. This has been I Have So Many Questions. I have been your host, Brian Watson. Thank you for your time, your patronage, your patience. Good night, Cleveland.